Welcome to Matizzi Stories, a podcast by the Matizzi Museums exploring Matizzi area history through its people, places, and events. This season, we're learning about Matizzi and the Bighorn Basin through one of its earliest residents, the bison. When we think about bison in the past, we tend to think of them as a prey animal, wild game hunted for thousands of years. They were hunted individually and encounter things. They were hunted in large groups. They were hunted by being um, run over cliffs. They were hunted by being run into arroyos. They were trapped in sand dunes. Uh, they were encountered and killed in places with no natural containment at all. One of the things that going back to that bison adaptability thing is that bison have encountered in North America and other places in their range, a predator that has been almost, well, it has been equally as flexible in the way humans can hunt bison. And so unlike um, the way wolf packs hunt bison or the way other animals hunt them that have sort of the standard repertoire of hunting techniques, humans are constantly changing both the technology we use for hunting and the information the group processes about how to hunt the animals and where to find the animals and how the animals are going to react to different situations. So um, about any way you can think of, uh, bison in North America have been hunted prehistorically. And still, um, they, they persevere. Paleo-Indian is a term used to describe the first people in North America. The word paleo comes from a Greek adjective, which means old or ancient. These first people lived during North America's prehistory, which just means they didn't leave behind a written record. They lived in kin-based groups, and instead of having a sedentary home, like a village or town or city, they followed their food. They would follow the green up as certain edible foods became available with the changing of the seasons, but they also followed animals, like bison. And one of the things that's always puzzled me and many of us about some of the earlier mass kills, the Paleo-Indian mass kills, is that a lot of them don't have things that we expect to find in later sites. Like they're not jump over a cliff. They're not necessarily running the animals into an arroyo. Uh, they occur in places where you just sort of scratch your head and wonder how in the hell did they get these animals constrained enough to kill them in this location. And the Horner site here outside of Cody is sort of a classic example of that. It's on a near pool table flat terrace surface that hasn't changed its morphology. It's built up sediments a little bit um, since the kill site, but it, it isn't an eroded arroyo that we're just seeing the bottom of it. It was a flat terrace um, 500 meters away from the drop-off. Um, and the animals appear to be lying where they were killed on that unconstrained location. So it really fascinates me about the technology. And I, I, I'm using technology here to incorporate the cultural knowledge of bison behavior that would have been required to be able to take those animals without having to rely on the natural constraints. And I think that's what we see going on early in the period, in early in the occupation, is those people after several thousand years had generated enough knowledge of bison behavior and bison ecology and bison reaction to situations that they probably could have used that knowledge of bison behavior as a big part of their hunting technology. 
uh, to be able to get them wherever they encountered them without having to build the structures, the drive lines of this or that or the other, to put the animals where we wanted them. Um, I'm thinking one of the amazing things about the earliest technology is that their use of information about animal behavior seems to have allowed them to exploit that behavior as a key part of their hunting technology in ways that we don't currently understand. In part because I don't think there's anybody living that understands not our best wildlife biologists, um, not our best people that study bison for their lifetimes. None of us understand the long-term situational um, behavioral aspects of bison that the people that dealt with them on a lifetime by lifetime um, situation would have. So that interests me about the technology. I think more so um, than the stone tools. I've never really been um, a stone tool person. Um, they're not nearly, uh, you know, a, a Eden point, a Cody point. Yeah, it's pretty, but boy, it's not near as fun to me as one of those distal bison humanoid from the same side. A mass kill site is exactly what it sounds like. Instead of killing an individual bison or maybe a small group, people work together to kill and perhaps more importantly, butcher large numbers. Some sites, like the Horner site outside of Cody or the Vore site in eastern Wyoming, were used repeatedly throughout time. Others were just used once. The communal kill is going to require some planning before it happens. And it may involve groups aggregating. And, and a lot of our communal kills, the big kills, tend to be clustered during the fall or the early winter of the year, where you start needing to put food into storage to make it through the winter when um, hunting is going to be difficult, travel is going to be difficult, um, other options are going to be more difficult. So a lot of the communal kills are probably your big um, go to Costco in the fall and stock up on food throughout the winter. And that may involve multiple groups coming together to do, do that. But what's also real important is that where you really need the large groups is not to operate the kill. It's to process all those animals after they've been killed. The real work of a mass kill site is in the processing after the animals are dead. And especially if you're doing it before um, temperatures drop below freezing at nighttime, it's got to be done fairly quickly. It can't be uh, a leisurely activity. You've got to get in there and get it going before um, it starts spoiling. And also before you start attracting all the other scavengers in the area. We know today that wolves and bears can be attracted to hunter gut piles, that they kind of target things like gunshots to know there's going to be a meal there. Uh, imagine what those other predators would have thought about the mass kill sites. Um, they would have been a major component of, of what they got excited about. So you're, you're, you probably would have, when you're processing a mass kill site, also have had to have people that could deal with trying to keep the scavengers and the predators come in to get their share of what was going on. So the real labor investment um, often occurs after the kill. And that may be one of the reasons that at sites like Horner, which is a Paleo-Indian period kill site where our best indications of human populations were that they were per likely regionally lower and maybe, maybe not as connected socially in terms of knowing where other groups were, 
uh, a lot of the Paleo-Indian kale sites tend to look like they were under-processed. And that may be the case that there are locations where you weren't able to call in all your kin groups after a big kill had taken place to um, share in the work and share in the food. You had to just deal with what your local group who had made the kill could deal with at the time. So um, the, that goes back to we were talking about technology. Part of the technology of running a huge mass kill site, especially like in Boresight, is the, the social component of technology of being to able to aggregate enough people to process that um, effectively and as fully as you can. One of the things that we sort of see in the Paleo-Indian period, both with um, bison and also as we're starting to see like it um, with, with mammoths as well, um, Paleo-Indians tended to move their people to the kill site so that um, it'd be like, um, rather than going to Albertsons and bring, getting your groceries and going home, we just move into Albertsons and, until we consume the groceries and then move on to the IGA down the street. Um, Paleo-Indians, again, probably in part because of not being able to rely on those social networks, moved the consumers to the goods, to the kill site, and probably didn't transport the meat long distances. It's energetically expensive to transport large amounts of meat. Um, and it's, it's easier to move your people to consume it. Later on, when there were more dogs and more people and horses to transport the meat, um, you could have the mass kill sites in more diverse settings and then begin stripping the meat off the bones, um, processing some of the marrow at the kill site, uh, maybe even doing some of the initial drying of the meat there at the kill location and then transport that stuff back to an optimal campsite with um, water and fuel and all that sort of stuff. So the transport decisions um, probably changed a good deal through time. There's, there, was no, there was no one right way to butcher a bison, one recipe that you can look up of this is the way we butcher and transport. It fit into the situations that your group and the season and the temperature and the what you had to transport it with chain uh, options were. So just like we talked about flexibility and hunting um, options and hunting strategies, transport strategies probably also were reliant on reading information from all sorts of conditions simultaneously and coming up with sort of, well, in this option, we're gonna do this, and in these conditions, we're gonna do this. In other words, hunting as a Paleo-Indian was similar in a lot of ways to hunting today. You had to know how to read animal behavior, you didn't want the meat to go bad before you could harvest it, and the more people you have to butcher, the better. The main difference, of course, was the numbers in which you were killing. Today there are limits on how many animals a hunter can harvest. These limits help to maintain a healthy population of animals. But it's clearly not the case when you drive an entire herd of bison over a jump. And yet bison coexisted with humans for thousands of years. So how frequent could these mass kills occur to not wipe out the bison? Oh, that's a good question. And I think it probably, it probably depends also on climate, depends mm -hmm. on 
where you're at. So, you know, the carrying capacity of a short grass plains is probably a lot lower than the carrying capacity of mid grass plains just from the amount of forage that's there. Um, we don't know about the tall grass plains. So a lot of my work has been in the big blue stem prairies of the Midwest. And one of the neat things about the big blue stem prairies is you've got a lot of really big grass, which you would think, oh, you know, this is bison eat grass so that you can support a lot of bison. In reality, there's not a lot of protein in that blue, in that blue stem grass. So um, you can eat a lot of it and still not really uh, you know, be able to support a, a very large population. So there's these really neat dynamics between forage and, and the amount of bison that can kind of make a living off of that forage. But then the other component of that is how much top-down pressure do you get, hunting pressure do you get from, from people? And I, it's kind of an untested scenario of mine that, you know, maybe as you move further east, you have kind of a more dense human populations on the landscape, which is why your bison start kind of dropping off. Um, you know, if, if they move east, then they get hunted more often. Uh, it's harder to maintain a population. There's, there's been some really neat work in Illinois and Ohio and Wisconsin in probably the last 10 or 15 years, really kind of defining the edge of where you get bison herds or bison in significant numbers. And, uh, and, and it'll be interesting to see how it kind of pans out in the future. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. <laughs> Mass kills have been occurring for thousands of years when a new tool was introduced to the toolkit of human hunters in North America. In 1519, Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés brought horses to North America, and it wasn't long before escaped horses spread throughout the Great Plains. The new animal changed hunting. My name is uh, Ken Cannon. I think it changed it significantly because um, once again, you people became, they became more mobile. Um, they were able to move over the landscape um, much more efficiently. And I, and I think um, also how, how they are able to, um, to move the, you know, the move the bison once they had killed them um, influenced, um, influenced hunting. Um, you know, we do, we do have bison kill sites that, that were, um, and jumps that were occurring during the horse period when, when there was horses there, whether or not they were using horses to drive them over the cliff um, is unknown, but we certainly know that, you know, they're, they're running, running horses and running bison and shooting them with arrows on horseback. So, you know, that, that certainly um, changed drastically. Uh, probably the danger of bison hunting. I still have a hard time thinking about people driving bison off a cliff. Um, and because from what we understand from the ethnographic record, you, you, you build drive lines. Drive lines probably had um, some some kind of brush, sagebrush or something to, to build up the walls. But then you also had people standing out there and waving and moving the bison um, and, and getting bison to move in that direction. So there was, you know, you were manipulating these bison uh, along the along the um, the landscape to to a place where they were going to be dispatched um, either in a corral or or jumped off a cliff. Um, I don't think all the bison were probably agreeable to that. Um, and I and I still, you know, when you know, again, sitting around drinking beer and with other archaeologists, it's just, you know, what's 
what was it like when the first person came home and said, hey, I got this great idea. You know, we're going to run bison off this cliff. And, you know, what, what was the initial reaction to that? Um, so, you know, I think, you know, maybe that that limited the, um, you know, being on horseback limited the, the danger, although riding horses in, in the middle of a herd of bison probably isn't the, you know, the safest thing to do. Um, I wouldn't recommend it to my kids or I wouldn't want to do it, but um, yeah, it's, it was an interesting period of transition and how in, in just the mobility of, of Native Americans. Well, before horses, you had dogs uh, and dogs were kind of small horses. So if you ran a whole bunch of bison off a cliff, uh, you know, all of a sudden you have a, a, a meat storage problem. You know, you're going to want to try and, and butcher those animals and dry out that meat or, or process it in some way to preserve it as soon as you can. Uh, and when you had dogs, you know, you could only carry so much on top of these dogs. You could only pack it around so much. Um, but once you had horses, they, they were really big dogs. And so there was a lot bigger meat packets you could, you could kind of cart around. One of the key places that we uh, see this transition is at the Vore Buffalo Jump there in, in northeastern Wyoming. And this is a place where Larry had worked with worked at for years. And actually, this is one of the places that I worked with Larry at, um, you know, back in the day. But uh, Vore Buffalo Jump, you know, it dates, it has basically a whole bunch of uh, bison jump episodes, one on top of the other between AD 1500 to about 1810. Uh, and so you see this transition between uh, stone tools and metal tools. You see this transition between the use of dogs to the use of horses uh, and a lot of other things that are kind of going on in that area at that time. And, and that is one of the things that you, you see in the lower parts of that buffalo jump where um, you know, people are using dogs to, to bring this stuff out of this deep sinkhole. Um, you know, you're seeing very different butchering chunks uh, that are often they're cut up more, they're, they're, they're smaller chunks, and so they can be hauled out on these, on these dogs. Uh, but as you have the adoption of a horse, and, and horses are more common, uh, then you, you see bigger chunks of the bison that are leaving. Uh, so we're always thinking, as archaeologists, we're always thinking, well, there's the kill site where this animal was, was killed, but then that's not where people live. That's not even necessarily where people process this animal in, in, in kind of more, uh, you know, more processing into this animal. There's also often kind of a staged uh, process to, to uh, you know, utilizing bison just because they're such big animals. And, and so you see this happen uh, in, in these buffalo uh, kill sites. Um, so yeah, it, it really did have a, a big impact certainly on, on the, the, how people used these animals and how they may have used the landscape too. The population density of bison vary across North America in response to things like how much nutrition is available and potentially where the higher populations of humans were. So what about bison in the Bighorn Basin? Bighorn Basin is not today and it doesn't look like in the past one of those optimal bison settings. If you think about the central basin, which are sort of badland settings, it's a real different setting than like the Powder River Basin, which is rich, open grasslands that has a lot more um, bison kills of throughout time periods. In the Bighorn Basin, we only have one well-documented mass kill site, 
And that's on the order of about 10,000 years ago when um, it was starting to shift into the, this modern, more semi-high desert sagebrush staff regime rather than a more grassland type regime. So um, Bighorn Basin probably throughout time had smaller, um, maybe more residential herds rather than the big migratory herds that we all think of when we envision um, bison sort of like the American wildebeest traveling in, in masses across the continent. Um, Bighorn Basin has probably always been a little bit different, well, just like it is today, um, a little bit different from the rest of, of the, the plains in terms of bison population. So we know that bison are the product of thousands of years of interaction with their human predators. And we know that the bison here in the Bighorn Basin were trying to survive in a habitat that's not exactly ideal. So what were their human predators like? Were they just as unique as their prey? They were um, hunting other animals. They were um, having complex social interactions. They were um, harvesting plants. They were cooking food. They were exploring. They were interacting with each other. They were interacting with their environment. They were having ceremonies. They were um, envisioning their future. They were telling stories about their past. Um, people here in the Bighorn Basin um, were doing all sorts of things. And one of the things that I think uh, to bounce away from bison for just a second, um, to think about we, we sort of consider Bighorn Basin in terms of, of settlement, and I talked about it in terms of bison as being sort of different from other places, but that doesn't mean that prehistorically it wasn't connected continental-wide to all sorts of other networks of people and, and trade and this and that and the other. Uh, so, for example, Obsidian from Yellowstone Park ends, out, ends up almost continental-wide. So there were connections here. Uh, we can't just think of even though those of us who live here in Northwestern Wyoming tend to kind of consider ourselves isolated and off to the side and this and that and the other. Um, prehistoric folks living here in the past probably um, would have thought that was just a really wacky idea. They had kinship networks and social networks and trade networks, um, both within the basin, uh, within the larger area, and in some instances, probably continental wide. So what they were doing here was living and being people. Some of these people are known today to much of the world as the Eastern Shoshone. It's their lands that we live on today and recreate in. For them, the bison is more than just an animal. My name is Jason Baldus. I'm a member of the Eastern Shoshone tribe. Buffalo to the Shoshone people uh, uh, were very important like many other Native American tribes. The buffalo was life's commissary, so everything that we needed uh, came from that animal. And our, and our people thrived on the wildlife economy, the buffalo economy, the wildlife uh, biodiversity of uh, plants and animals is what allowed our people to thrive and flourish. And so the, the, the name for ourselves, uh, we're the Eastern Band of the Shoshone, but the name for our, ourselves is the Guichandika, the buffalo eaters, because we distinguished ourselves by the foods we ate. And so there's the sheep eaters, the salmon eaters, the rabbit eaters, were the buffalo eaters. And so the uh, buffalo uh, was not only life's commissary, but it was also central to our spirituality and belief systems, our, our relationality to uh, the, the planet, uh, to the earth, to the inhabitants. And so the, the buffalo uh, was a central, central part of, of that, 
medicine wheel philosophy. And um, so very, very important animal, not only to Shoshone people, but to many other tribes. Unfortunately, the bison that had been part of Plains tribe's subsistence for thousands of years decreased from as many as 30 to 60 million animals to a mere 300 by the end of the 19th century. For many years, bison hides were part of a valuable market. The hides were traded by Native American groups for metal points, trade beads, and more. The hide market undoubtedly contributed to the downfall of the bison, but there's not just one simple reason for the decline of their population. As more and more European settlers came to the New World, they started to expand west. And as they started to expand west, they began encroaching upon more and more and more Native American group lands. As the Native Americans tried to keep their homes from the European settlers and defend their lifeways, the bison was exploited. By killing the bison, the United States was eliminating the main food source of many Plains tribes, which undermined their ability to defend their lands. If you can't feed your people, you certainly cannot fight. Two years after the end of the Civil War, a member of the United States Army reportedly ordered his troops to, quote, kill every buffalo you can. Every dead buffalo is an Indian gone, end quote. Early Matitsi and Bighorn Basin residents were part of this early bison market. And as Josh Dean recalls in his autobiography, John Corbett was one example. I met John Corbett, an old buffalo hunter and a very recent arrival in the basin. He'd been in the West for some time. Hunting buffalo, doing freighting at Powder River, helping build Fort McKinney, supplying game to the post at Fort Custer, from which he'd come to Trail Creek to start his horse ranch. he just finished building a large dugout and log cabin, which was a hangout for soldiers who had deserted and a trading post for the Indians. I've never gone to Corbett's without finding a number of men there, usually both whites and Indians. The employment of the white men was trapping and hunting, drying sheep and buffalo meat, and packing it to the steamboat line at Colson, now Huntley, Montana. Regardless of the nature of John Corbett's hunting, by the time that he met Josh Dean, many reservations were created throughout the West for Native Americans, and this included the Wind River Reservation here in Wyoming, which was created in 1868 for the Eastern Shoshone. The Shoshone were allowed to make a seasonal bison hunt after settling on the Wind River Reservation in 1868. As late as 1874, and possibly for a few more years, the Shoshone traveled to the Bighorn Basin to hunt. James Patton, government teacher on the reservation, accompanied Chief Washakie and the Shoshone in October 1874. From Wind River, they crossed over the Owl Creek Mountains into the southwestern portion of the basin, and found bison herds on the Gooseberry about 40 miles from its mouth, or west of the Bighorn River, where they killed 125 buffalo. Four years after James Patton visited the Bighorn Basin with the Eastern Shoshone on a hunting trip, Otto Frank, future owner of the Pitchfork Ranch outside of Matitsi, did the same. At the time, hunting trips to the Wild West were popular among the wealthy. After traveling out to the West on rail car, the wealthy would come up to Fort Washakie from Rollins and then stock up for their hunting trip. It was a quite lengthy process, but it's one that Otto Frank embarked on. A journal he kept during his trip shows that bison were indeed hunted. August 30. During our tramp, we saw fresh signs of buffalo on the foot of the mountains, and we think we will see some in a day or two. Shortly after us, the doctor and Jack arrive in camp. The doctor has killed a large antelope buck 
and reports of having fired into a band of nine buffaloes without killing one. August 31. We shift camp a few miles to the head of Horse Creek on the northerly edge of Rattlesnake Mountains. In the afternoon, L and I ascend a hill close to camp to view the surrounding country. On arriving on top, we see a large solitaire buffalo bull not too far off. We had to return to camp for our guns and then begin to crawl up to the buffalo. It is a bad place for stalking, he being in the open plain and the wind partly in his favor. When we are 250 yards from him, he smells us and we have to shoot. We fire simultaneously and he gets both bullets. He only shakes himself and stops long enough to get two more bullets. This time he is hard hit. He swings wildly around and goes off as fast as his legs can carry him. He presents a curious, almost comical sight as he goes with his clumsy yet fast cow gallop over sagebrush and ditches. He cannot keep up his mad careen long and has to stop to blow. This enables me to come up to 150 yards and give him another bullet. This sends him on again, and as it is getting dark and he is severely wounded, we do not follow any further, but intend to hunt him up in the morning. When we get to camp, we hear the doctor has killed one. September 1. L and I go on horseback to look for the buffalo. We ride several miles, but do not find him, the ground being broken and hilly. September 7. I, having a lively pony, embrace the opportunity to have a buffalo chase. I head for the nearest band of bulls at a slow canter. They let me approach to within a hundred yards before they take to their heels. As I let my horse go faster, they also increase their pace until it is a well-contested measuring of speed. The buffalo pounding the ground with great force, making the dirt fly in all directions. While I am gaining on them fast, I finally get abreast of them and compel them to change their course when I give up the chase, not wishing to tire my pony unnecessarily. I stop and dismount, being only 25 yards from the buffalo. When they see me hold back, they also lessen their speed and finally come to a stop, looking at me not more than a hundred yards away. Not wishing to waste powder at such miserable game, I return to our party and the buffalo go off at a slow trot. All my illusions about buffalo hunting formed from books of Western adventure are dispelled and I look upon it as the worst kind of sports hunting in which no true sportsman will indulge. I am speaking here only of hunting the bulls. We have seen no cows or calves yet, but we hear they are much more wary and wild. I will also add that while in the rattlesnake, we tried some of the buffalo hunting, which is so often mentioned, 
in the various works of sensational writers, we took pieces of a young bull, which the doctor had killed, and we cooked it in several styles and found it in all cases, almost entirely unfit for food, being tough and stringy. Otto Frank's hunting trip took place only 14 years before the reported death of the last wild bison in the Bighorn Basin. In his unpublished manuscript, Tom Osborne reports, The last wild buffalo was on Matitsi Rim at the head of Horse Creek in 1892. About seven cowboys with six shooters kept up with the animal and peppered him until he dropped. If the accounts of Tom Osborne and Otto Frank made you cringe, you're not alone. The story of the bison is amazing, but the events at the end of the 19th century are quite simply heart-wrenching. Join us next time to learn how the bison are saved from the brink of extinction. Special thanks to Gary Warner, Corey Anko, Larry Todd, and Jason Winsenried for reading first-person narratives from the Matizzi Museum's archives. Wherever you're listening to the podcast, please remember to rate and review. It helps people find us, and it helps us do better next time.